This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm thrilled to be with you tonight to share with you a relatively new and I think incredibly exciting field of research that's really changing our view of human biology, the, the, the field of human microbiome research. And that really describes studying the intense, diverse communities of bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live in and on the human body and understanding how they shape our health. So what will we cover tonight? Well, first things first, how do you study entire communities of microbes? What tools do we have? And and how do we understand not just who's there, but what they're doing and how they're interacting with the human host? And we'll go through a quick whirlwind of the human microbiome, human microbiome 101. And then I want to shift into some of the work that we've been doing in leveraging the very early life gut microbiome to understand an airway disease that occurs years later in childhood. So not your typical thinking inside the box on this one. Um, and, And how we can use the microbiome not just to predict allergic asthma development, but to understand why it develops in these children in very early life and to develop new therapeutics to intervene early to prevent disease development. And then I want to give you a quick rundown of what's next. What is in the future? What's the crystal ball for this field? What are we developing here at UCSF and beyond to leverage findings in this field to really develop what we see as a new field of microbiome medicine? And so when I begin my lectures, I like to begin at the beginning, the very, very beginning, the birth of the planet and point out that the first and most successful organisms on the planet are microbes. They're bacteria. They have been around, been around the longest. They are the most successful. They're also the most numerous, the most diverse, and ubiquitous. Everywhere we look on this planet, we can find microbes. They have evolved and adapted to live in the most extreme of environments. That can be everything from an acid mine to the incredible pressures at the bottom of the ocean um, to incredible uh, extremes of heat and chemical exposure, for example. So they're adept. They can live in the most extreme environments. And as I said, they are everywhere. So we, as well as every other biological entity on this planet, have evolved in a microbial soup. And in fact, we haven't just evolved in microbial soup, we've co-evolved with microbes. They live in and on us, and we actually rely on them for functions that we ourselves do not encode in the human genome. But how have we studied microbiology? Well, we've taken a very reductionist view traditionally, What we've traditionally done is taken microbes out of their environment, grown them under feast conditions in laboratory media by themselves, and studied what they do. And nothing could be further from the truth of how these microbes exist. They're actually quite social. They live like us in diverse communities. They communicate with one another. They use small molecules to sense who's in their neighborhood and respond to those microbes that are in their neighborhood. So how do we get 
at these organisms, many of which we've never cultured. We don't know how to grow them. We don't know what they eat. We don't know what they subsist on. We turn to molecular tools. So the kind of workhorse of the field of microbiome research is using DNA-based methods to identify microbes without ever having to grow them or isolate them from a sample. We'll take a sample, we'll extract the DNA from it, and remember that DNA comes from every microbial cell in that sample. They could be various different types of microbes. And then one approach we have is really targeting specific genes, like this one, called the 16S ribosomal RNA gene. This is a gene that's only found in bacteria. It's not found in any higher organisms. And it's a great biomarker gene for identifying which bacterium it came from because it has these regions in the gene that are really highly conserved across all known bacteria. So we use those highly conserved regions to kind of anchor an assay that we have to basically make copies of the region in between. And the regions in between those really conserved regions of the gene are what we call hypervariable. There the sequence varies, and it varies depending on which bacterium the gene came from. So we can make lots of copies of these genes and then sequence the hypervariable region to figure out who it came from. And in that way, we can uh, generate like what you would think of as a fingerprint. Which bacteria are there, and in how much of each bacterium is there? What's the relative abundance? And this is really useful for comparing across very large cohorts of samples where we just want to know who's there and how it differs, for example, in health and disease. We've got a similar tool for looking at fungi. There's a lot of various regions we can look at with the same type of technique. But we tend to use this one called the interspacer region 2. Again, we amplify that piece of the genome from fungi, sequence it, and then we can tell which fungus it actually arose from. And in that way, look at fungal communities and how they're composed, who's in that fungal community. But the tools for assessment of the microbiome have rapidly evolved and expanded in capacity over the last several years. And we now can, instead of just looking at a biomarker gene, actually take all of the DNA we extracted and sequence all of that DNA and then put those pieces back together, basically reassembling the genomes of all of the microbes in that sample. And this is no small feat, as you can imagine. I, I joke, although it's not really a joke, and I say it's like me handing you War and Peace by Tolstoy in pieces and asking you to put it all back together in a legible form. That's the, the computational capacity that we need is immense to, to do this job, but something that we have developed very rapidly over the last several years. So while biomarker gene sequencing tells us who's there, shotgun metagenomics tells us the genes that these organisms encode and what they have the capacity to do. But we've pushed this field even further. We can also extract RNA from a sample. It's another type of nucleic acid. And it basically, it's the transcription of those genes. So it's what is that, the, that community of microbes actually transcribing off their genomes? How are they responding to the current conditions? And we can sequence those pools of extracted RNA by uh, sequencing also. And we, we call this metatranscriptomics. It gives us a snapshot into the genes that are being expressed at the time of sample collection by organisms in the microbiome. 
But what's even more exciting is that we can look even deeper. These are all next-generation sequencing-based tools to look at microbiomes. We can also use mass spectrometry, the capacity to identify small molecules. And we can use this to look at protein pools produced by the microbiome to understand the proteins that they produce. And that includes, remember, all of the enzymes and catalytic functions of the microbiome. But what's nearest and dearest to my heart is metabolomics, looking at the small molecules. Remember I said that that's how microbes communicate with each other. In fact, that's how cells communicate with each other, irrespective of whether they're microbial or host. And this, for me, is the lexicon that governs microbial host, human host interactions. And this is where we think the next frontier, and we're already realizing the next frontier in this field really lies. So the application of these tools, and in particular DNA-based tools, has massively expanded our view of bacterial life um, on this planet. This is the tree of life. This is everything. We're down in one of the little branches down there on the bottom with the eukaryotes. These up here on the top are all bacteria. And this is a study that was published in 2016. Everything in purple are brand new bacteria that were identified in this study alone with molecular methods. So we have immensely uh, diversified the bacterial tree of life. And we suspect that this is also true for viruses and for fungi. We just need to catch up in developing the tools for those realms of microbial life. But what these tools have told us is that there is a much broader range of fungi and viruses, particularly those that exist in the human body, than we previously were led to believe based on culture-based approaches. And in total, the application of all of these tools to interrogate the microbiome has left us realizing that we're not alone. We are, in fact, superorganisms. We're a conglomerate of microbial and mammalian cells that have co-evolved over time. And we are colonized inside and out by microbes. This is just simply looking at microbial diversity across the surface of the skin. Anything in red is kind of higher diversity. In blue is regions where there's lower microbial diversity. This is looking with mass spectrometry at the molecules made by those microbes uh, on the skin. And here you can see that even where there's regions where there's not so many microbes present, there's a huge biochemical diversity of molecules that are produced at those sites. Produced by the microbes, produced by the host cells in response to the microbes, there's a rich molecular lexicon occurring at these sites. That's simply the skin, and that's actually considered a very low microbial burden site. We house the greatest burden and diversity of microbes in our gut, particularly in the distal gut. And these microbes um, are not simply bystanders. These microbes influence how our gastrointestinal cells behave and function and respond to this microbial zoo in the lower gut. And I will say it's not just the lower gut. There are microbes, obviously, in the mouth and the whole way down through the GI tract. 
they differ at different sites along the GI tract. And we think that that's because of the prevailing conditions that differ. If you think about in the stomach, the pH is very low. In the lower gastrointestinal tract, there's very little oxygen there. These are strong selective pressures that, are, that drive the types of organisms that like to thrive in these distinct niches along the gastrointestinal tract. But I think what's really amazing is to think about how much our microbiome dwarfs our human genome in terms of genetic capacity and genes that it encodes. This is one study of European, Asian, and U.S. populations. Just over 1,200 fecal samples were sampled and examined using shotgun metagenomics. So looking at all of the microbes and all of the genes encoded by the microbiome in those 1,200 or so samples. And what's staggering is almost 10 million microbial genes were found just across those 1,200 or so individual fecal samples. I want to let you think about that for a second. That is incredible. This is an ancillary microbial genome that we carry around with us. These genes are not silent. They are actively expressed. And we rely on these genes for things like digesting our dietary components, for digesting, metabolizing our drugs, in fact, um, and for informing and influencing our immune response. So these are an important part of our physiology, an important part of what makes us healthy or diseased. And to add to the complexity that this is not just one type of microbiome that we have in one site, we develop our microbiome in early life. We are born with a very simple microbiome that we inherit from our mothers. It either arises in utero or is uh, contributed to through the birthing process. Babies who are born through the vaginal canal have a preponderance of lactobacillus species, which are the dominant organisms in the female vaginal tract. Babies who come out the sunroof by cesarean section end up quite frequently with organisms we find on the skin, staphylococcus and streptococcus, suggesting that very early life Postnatal exposures influence those communities of microbes that uh, are found in the very early gut. And as we proceed through very early life development, we now know that a whole range of factors influence and shape the types of microbes and activities of the gut microbiome. Things like early life nutrition, antimicrobial exposure, as I mentioned, cesarean section, really strongly influence what type of microbes are there and how they're functioning. We continue to expand the diversity of bacteria that we have in the gut up until about three years of age. Around then, the diversity looks like that of an adult, but the functional genes in that microbiome at three years of age are quite different from that of a healthy adult. Throughout life, we continue to shape our microbiomes. In fact, I view them as uh, in adulthood as a history of your exposures in life. Things like pharmaceuticals, diet, infection, sex hormones, even environmental toxicants can serve as strong selective pressures on which microbes are present and what they're producing and therefore how they're interacting with the host.
And to really reinforce this and add to the complexity, if we take a point in time, not all microbiomes are equal. This is a study of a, uh, the gut microbiome in developing and developed nations, in adults in this case. Here in red and green, we have gut microbiomes of Malawian and Amerindian populations. In blue, we have the U.S. population. And basically, each spot is a profile of what type of bacteria were in the gut microbiome of these individuals. And how we work through this immense amount of data that we generate is we ask how similar is microbiome profile A to all of the other microbiome profiles in our cohort. And we calculate a distance. How similar is it? How close is it in terms of which microbes are there and what relative abundance, how much of them are there? And that's just a visualization of this distance calculation. So if we have two spots representing two gut microbiomes of individuals in these studies that are closely uh, plotted beside one another, it means that those two gut microbiomes are very similar to one another. But what you can starkly see in this is the U.S. gut microbiomes are very different from those of the Amerindian and the Malawian population. And even though the Malawian and the Amerindian populations are on two different continents, their gut microbiomes in these less developed nations are more like each other than they are like a U.S. population gut microbiome. To reinforce what we've done to our microbiomes in the U.S., this is just looking at the number of types of bacteria that were detected across these populations. We have severely reduced the breadth of diversity and the number of different types of bacteria in the U.S. population compared to those in less developed nations. And the really wonderful thing about this study is we got indications why this might be happening. When the study examined with shotgun metagenomics, looking at all the genes and the pathways in these microbiomes, what really differed between these populations? What was really striking is that the adult population of Amerindian and Malawians were really enriched for alpha amylases. So this is an enzyme that breaks down complex plant polysaccharides. So the diet in Malawi and in the Merindian population is predominantly a plant polysaccharide, a plant-based diet. In the U.S. population, we see huge enrichment of microbial metabolic pathways for processing simple sugars, found in processed foods, as we all know. So at least one feature, one thing that we know is driving these differences in the gut microbiome across these populations is differences in diet, in what we consume. And this was reinforced even more recently by Pete Turnbaugh, who is a faculty member here. This was a really wonderful diet-based study of 10 individuals. And what Peter did was he took those individuals and looked at how a plant-based or an animal-based diet may actually influence a healthy gut microbiome. And here we're just showing you the amount of fiber in their diet of these individuals before they started the study. Then they got, you know, four days of a plant-based diet, or the other participants got four days of an animal-based diet. And as you would expect, the fiber content with the plant-based diet, or the plant polysaccharide content, goes up quite high. In an animal-based diet, it's very low. 
Also, the fat intake is lower in the plant-based diet compared to the animal-based diet, and the protein uh, content is also dramatically different across these two diets. And he could track that these key dietary components really shift with the introduction of either a plant-based diet or an animal-based diet. What was really striking is that when Peter calculated, again, the distance, how similar are the microbiomes of the individual's after they start their plant-based diet compared to before they started their plant-based diet didn't really see much in the way of change. Plant-based diet doesn't really perturb the gut microbiome. However, in comparison, the animal-based diet introduction really increased this distance. And what that tells us is that microbiome is very different from the microbiome that was there before the introduction of the plant-based diet. But it's not just about changing the composition of the microbiome that matters. What the study also showed is that you change the molecular output of the microbiome by changing the diet. And here we can see that two key short-chain fatty acids, acetate and butyrate, were significantly reduced in the animal-based diet versus the plant-based diet. And that makes sense because these are the products of microbial fermentation of plants, of fiber. And what's really critical is these short-chain fatty acids are crucial energy sources for the cells that line the gut. They're anti-proliferative and they're anti-inflammatory. And we think they've become these, they've, they have these activities because we've co-evolved with these microbes who traditionally have fermented our plant-based diet into these small molecules which quench inflammation and promote kind of health in the system. And so based on this, I'm sure you're not going to be surprised that we're finding an ever-increasing range of diseases are related to perturbations to the microbiome. And things, you know, like the skin microbiome is perturbed in dermatological conditions, like psoriasis, for example. But what's really exciting is that we are now seeing that conditions like obesity is also linked to gut microbiome perturbation. But what's most exciting for me is that we're finding that conditions that are very difficult to treat and that we really don't have a handle on, like depression and autism spectrum disorder, are also linked to perturbations in the gut microbiome, suggesting that the gut microbiome may actually influence remote organs. And there's a couple of really key seminal studies that have shown this. They've shown that perturbations in the gut microbiome are associated with autism spectrum disorder and also with cardiovascular disease. But importantly, what these studies have shown is that it's microbial metabolites, microbial products that are responsible for these disorders. And much of this work has been done in mice with some follow-up work in humans. So it suggests that the gut is not like Vegas. What happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. It actually enters the circulation, and these small molecules, and perhaps there's some inklings, even microbes themselves, may actually translocate to other sites across the body and change the physiology of the organs there, contributing to the health or disease of those remote organs. But how do we really know that it's the gut microbiome that's responsible for this? Well, that evidence has come from some really elegant mouse studies. 
So in these studies, the, in this case that I'm showing you, the feces of obese individuals or lean individuals were transferred into germ-free mice. These are mice that have no existing microbiome. They're bred to lack a microbiome. They're not particularly healthy mice, but they're bred to not have a microbiome. They're a wonderful vessel for studying how microbial introduction into kind of a pristine environment may shape the physiology of the host. And that's what these studies have shown us. Transfer of the obese microbiome into a germ-free mouse sets up an obesogenic microbiome in that animal. And those animals gain weight at a much faster rate than that of animals who receive the lean microbiome, suggesting that the phenotype of the disease can be transferred from the patient by transferring the gut microbiome of that patient to a mouse. That's pretty incredible. That means that the microbiome is responsible in large part for uh, obesity in this case. What's exciting is that it's not just obesity. Obesity. This has also been shown for Kwashiorkor. This is a wasting disease with neurological deficits that is really can be quite prevalent in uh, underdeveloped nations like Bangladesh, for example. Same thing. Transfer of the Kwashiorkor gut microbiome or feces to germ-free mice induces wasting disease in those animals. More recently, it's actually been shown for autism spectrum disorder. Feces from Patients with ASD transferred into germ-free mice induce neurobehavior that is consistent with the symptomology of the disease. So again, we're finding multiple disease indications where we can recapitulate features of the disease in a mouse who receives the microbiome from the patients with with the disorder. So what can we do? Well... We call it yellow soup for the soul. Uh, Fecal microbial transplant. I'm sure you've all heard of it. It's not new. I call it yellow soup for the soul because there are uh, records in 5th century Chinese medicine of producing yellow soup from feces as a treatment for gastrointestinal conditions. We've just recently rediscovered fecal microbial transplant. And what's very exciting is that it is essentially doing what we do in the mice, but instead it's transferring the healthy gut microbiome from a healthy donor to the gut microbiome of a patient with a disease or a condition or an infection to try and reconstitute the gut microbiome of the patient and treat the disease. So this has 92% efficacy in patients with Clostridium difficile infection. Antimicrobial treatment for Clostridium difficile is about 30% effective. And in this trial that used fecal microbial transplant to treat Clostridium difficile infection, they actually stopped the trial early because it was really not they couldn't not treat the patients with this treatment because they were seeing 92% efficacy versus 30% in the, in the uh, vancomycin taper antimicrobial-treated patients. It was unethical to continue the trial and not use this to treat patients. And we actually offer this at UCSF as um, a treatment for Clostridium difficile infection. It's also been used in a small pilot early study of... Uh, children with autism spectrum disorder. 
It's about 18 or 19 children in the study. There they saw significant reductions in uh, neurobehavioral symptomology in those children. In this case, instead of a single treatment where there's a colonoscopic delivery of the fecal slurry into the diseased gut, they did that initially, but then they followed it up with a month of sustained microbial pressure in which the the children actually consumed freeze-dried fecal capsules. And that was sufficient, a month of treatment, to significantly reduce the um, neurobehavioral uh, deficiencies in these patients. They've also recently followed up two years later with these children, and this effect is sustained. And in fact, they've seen even greater improvements across this small cohort that has been treated. And so now this is under clinical trial in much larger placebo-controlled studies uh, across the country as a potential treatment for autism spectrum disorder. We at UCSF have been looking at inflammatory bowel disease. I'm in the gastroenterology division. I can tell you that we looked at Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And fecal microbial transplant does not work for Crohn's disease, at least the way that we tried it, with a single colonoscopic delivery. We had several adverse events, and we shut down the study. And I think it's important for that message to get out equally as the 92% Clostridium difficile efficacy um, uh, message. It's not equal. The microbiome is not the answer to all of our patients' ailments. And I think that it's important that we are are cautious and that we are careful about how we implement this field and how we use this field to treat our patients. However, with a... Uh, an approach very similar to that taken in the trial of autism spectrum disorder patients, we're now at about 40% response rate in our ulcerative colitis patients. And that's really exciting. You know, our biologics are about maybe 20% efficacy, and we try different biologics in patients to ask what will work for them. But we're seeing 40% response rate with fecal microbial transplant. We've got ideas how we can even enhance this even more, and I'll talk a little bit about this a little later in in the study. So for me, we're at a watershed moment in human biology We've just discovered that we have this ancillary microbial genome that really influences our health, that shapes how our cells work and influences our health status. And what I want to shift to now is talking about how we leverage this field to tackle um, a disease that I know probably everybody in the room knows somebody with asthma. Right now in the U.S., we're at about 11% of our population diagnosed with the disease, and it's growing. And you can see from this map, this is a disease of westernized nations. This is a disease of lifestyle and environment. This is not necessarily a genetic disease in in the typical sense. What I think most alarming for me is that the prevalence of this disease has increased most dramatically in the pediatric population. Children are disproportionately affected by allergic asthma, which is the predominant form of asthma in this country. And for those maybe a little less familiar with the disease, it's characterized by a pretty specific immune dysfunction. 
Children with um, allergic asthma have far fewer of these specific type of T cells called regulatory T cells. They produce this molecule called IL-10, and you want to think about these cells as putting the brakes on inflammation. We need them to dial down inflammation. So children with asthma have far fewer of these cells, and instead they have much more of these ones. These are another type of T cells called T2 cells, and they produce three other molecules called IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, and they ramp up inflammation. These children are also characterized by having very high concentrations of this antibody, IgE, in their circulation. So they are the cardinal immune dysfunctional features of allergic asthma. Something to remember as we move through the rest of the presentation. I think what's also striking to me is that while we can treat our patients with corticosteroids, long-acting beta agonists, we have no cure. And that's what really drove me into this field and start thinking about very early life and what are the factors that influence disease development and could the microbiome be the canary in the coal mine for asthma and allergy development in childhood. And what drove me towards that idea was really the, the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants. There's many, many studies that have tried to figure out the genesis or the developmental origins of allergy and asthma. So there's been lots of very large studies, birth cohort studies, where babies are followed into childhood from birth. You know their early life exposures, and you know whether they developed allergy or asthma years later in childhood. And these studies are really consistent in the factors that we know increase the risk of disease. There are things like formula feeding, antimicrobial administration, and cesarean section. And if those factors sound familiar, they're amongst the things I told you at the outset of this presentation shape the composition and the activities of the gut microbiome. On the flip side, decreased risk of allergies and asthma in childhood are, are associated with breastfeeding, with exposure to livestock and animals, and in fact we've shown in the inner city environment to cats, mice, and cockroaches, all vectors for microbes. And they increase the microbial diversity and microbial exposure for babies in very early life. And we think that's important because we think the environment of the baby serves as the library of microbes that are available for accumulation into the gut microbiome and elsewhere as we develop our microbiome in that critical window of the first few years of life. But we were still, before we really launched into this field, interested in asking questions in models. Can the gut microbiome really impact the airways? Because no one had really shown that. And so to do this, we did a pretty simple study in which we took mice and daily we fed them this lactobacillus species. We did that for a week before we sensitized the airways of the animals with cockroach antigens. So IT stands for intratracheal, and CRA is cockroach antigen. So we exposed the airways of this mice to an antigen that induces allergic inflammation. As a control group, we had um, animals who didn't receive the, the lactobacillus johnsoni. And what we found was that in the animals that received the lactobacillus johnsoni, 
you can see that they have significantly reduced IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. The three molecules I told you that the, the group of cells, the T cells, produce that promote allergic inflammation. And this was true whether we looked at the expression of these genes or the protein of these genes. And what was even more compelling is this is what the airways of these animals look like. These are the animals whose airways we've sensitized who got no lactobacillus into the gut. Here are the, uh, the airways of those that received the lactobacillus supplementation. The airspaces of these animals are absolutely pink and, and occluded with mucin. That pink staining stains mucin. So they are completely full of mucin. These are, are uh, highly inflamed airways. And this does not occur in the animals who received an oral lactobacillus supplementation. But began, we began to start thinking about this. Is this just about allergy? Or is this really a more profound airway protection that occurs when we change the microbiome by introducing microbes into the gut? And so we asked the same question, but here we didn't use allergen. Now we used respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. We think of that as an asthmogenic virus. Children who have an infection with RSV in the first few months of life that requires hospitalization are significantly more likely to go on to develop asthma. It's kind of a red flag for asthma. And so we have this model in which here we used live lactobacillus johnsoni or heat-killed lactobacillus. Do we need a metabolically active microbe to uh, engender uh, protection in these animals? And PBS is just saline. That's a control in this study. And we know that when we infect these mice with RSV, they have this very predictable kind of infection dynamic. And by day eight, we can see profound pathology in the airways. And so what we found is that when we tested the airways of these animals for how responsive they were, only the animals that received the live lactobacillus johnsoni had significantly reduced reactive airways. And also, they were the only animals that had significant reductions in allergic inflammatory markers and molecules in their airways. Again, IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. So this told us that we needed a live microbe to actually confer protection in the airways, which is what this is pointing out. But we began to think about how does this happen? What's actually happening before we get to that stage where we can see differences in airway pathology? And so we rolled back the timeline on this model and simply asked with the same type of model, now we're just looking at animals supplemented with live lactobacillus johnsoni versus PBS, what happens at day two? And we were particularly interested in whether there were metabolic changes in these animals, whether the small molecules produced by an altered gut microbiome could hold the secret to the response to the viral infection. And I don't expect you to read all of this. Here's where we use that mass spectrometry to look at all the small molecules that are produced in these animals, in their serum, in their circulation. This is what we see in the control animals two days after we infect them with uh, respiratory syncytial virus. Anything in blue has gone down from baseline. Anything in red has gone up. Not a whole lot going on. And I think you'll agree that that's true when I show you what happens in the animals that receive the live lactobacillus johnsoni. 
Now, we see two days after the viral infection in the airways, this immense capacity to produce a whole range of amino acids, peptides, but in particular, lipids. And when we saw this list of lipids, we got super excited because in this list of lipids, there are a whole range of things like polyunsaturated fatty acids that we know dial down inflammation. And so that suggested to us that when we alter the gut microbiome of this mice, these mice, we change the metabolic output, not just of what's in the gut, but what's in the circulation of these animals, and that that's what leads to the protection against the viral infection in the airway. But we wanted a little bit more evidence for this. So we did one more experiment. We took what we call bone marrow-derived dendritic cells. So these are immune cells that are really critical in uh, response to viral infection. And we incubated those immune cells with the, the blood, the plasma, of the animals who received either the control, PBS, and were subsequently infected, or the ones that had the lactobacillus johnsoni introduced into the gut and then were infected. So those ones that had that two-day lipid onslaught that we saw. And then we took those dendritic cells, those immune cells, and asked, how do they now respond to the virus when they encounter it? Could the products that we see in the circulation change the activity of the immune cells? And that's indeed what we found. The immune cells that we co-incubated with the plasma from the animals who had the lactobacillus johnsoni now are significantly less inflammatory, they're significantly less activated, and they have significantly less lower capacity to present antigen, to engage in an inflammatory response. So what this tells us is that by changing the gut microbiome, we can change the metabolic output of the system from the gut, and we can actually protect the airways of those animals. And it looks like some of this is through the production of these metabolites. What I neglected to tell you is we started looking at some of those metabolites, and we did find that one of those polyunsaturated fatty acid conferred this phenotype in the cells. So we were right in thinking that those anti-inflammatory lipids are perhaps the ones that are driving this change in how our immune cells are functioning in this mouse model. So that's all in mice. That's great. But that's a model system. Could the early life gut microbiome actually be perturbed in babies who go on to develop allergies and asthma. And maybe it's just beyond a perturbation to who's there. Could the metabolites being produced by the early life gut microbiome actually be the key to priming the immune cell differentially in children, in babies who go on to be uh, children with asthma? And so we started, we really wanted to, to ground this in something that was very kind of solid. And so we think of early life microbiome development no differently from how any other ecosystem develops. And we've studied ecosystem development for a couple of hundred years. So it's a pretty good framework. We know how ecosystems develop. And one of the things we know about ecosystem development is that the first colonizers, the first species into a previously pristine um, ecosystem, can actually shape the conditions in that ecosystem, and species accumulation trajectories over time. So what this suggested to us is perhaps there's different types of seed microbiomes, 
different types of microbiomes in early life that lead to different trajectories of microbiome development. And remember, the microbiome educates the immune response. And we think that that could lead to distinct immune maturation and give rise to health or asthma and allergy development years later in childhood. And again, as I mentioned, we began to think about how this might work. And we began to think of what we've seen in the uh, neurology field, the gut microbiome or the cardiology field, that gut microbial metabolites can shape uh, remote organ uh, behavior And we've seen that in our mice. So we thought that it's not just about a perturbed gut microbiome in early life. It's perhaps the molecules that that gut microbiome is producing really skew immune development in those babies. And so one of the first studies that we addressed this in was a study of the gut microbiome of healthy babies and high-risk for asthma babies. And they're designated high-risk for asthma babies because they have at least one parent who has asthma. And this is the meconium microbiome. This is the first bowel movement of newborn babies. This forms in utero. And here I'm showing you another one of those plots where it's one of those distance plots. In red are the high-risk babies. In green are the healthy babies. And you can see they're kind of segregated along this axis. They're spatially separated. They're actually significantly different. So high-risk for asthma babies start life with a very different microbiome from healthy babies. And what's exciting and consistent with what ecosystem theory would predict those babies follow a different trajectory of microbiome development. These are the healthy babies, and they accumulate bacterial diversity at a pretty uh, quick clip over the first year of life. In contrast, the high risk for asthma and allergy babies have delayed diversification of their gut microbiome. And remember, each species of microbe brings with it its own genome and its own repertoire of genes into the gut microbiome. So these babies will have a very functionally distinct gut microbiome. They just don't have the same microbial capacity that a healthy gut microbiome has. But that's simply one study. Can we see this in a population? These are high-risk versus healthy controls. This is the extreme. Can we actually spot this just in a population of babies? And so to do this, we studied a large birth cohort. Again, this is one of these studies where samples are collected in very early life, and the babies are followed out through life, and we know whether they, in this case, developed allergy at two years of age or asthma at four years of age. In the part of the study I'm going to tell you about, we had 130 one-month-old babies from whom we had fecal samples. So we profiled their uh, microbiota using the the gene-based approach I told you about at the outset to find out which bacteria and which fungi were present in these microbiomes of these 130 babies. And then this is quite a large amount of data. We became hands-off at this stage. We asked an algorithm, can you find significantly distinct gut microbiomes amongst these 130 babies? And the answer was three. The answer always seems to be three. Here again, I'm showing you one of these distance plots. And here you can see that what the algorithm called the three different gut microbiomes, we've labeled them neonatal gut microbiome one, two, and three, shown in blue, green, and red. And again, they're spatially segregated. They're significantly different in their composition. And actually, 
calling them neonatal gut microbiome 1, 2, and 3, those classifications explain about 9% of the variance in microbiotas we see in these 130 babies. But the key question is, does starting life at one month of age with one of these gut microbiomes relate to the clinical outcomes we see at age 2 and age 4? And the answer was a resounding yes. Babies with the one-month-old NGM3 gut microbiome were at significantly higher risk of developing atopy or allergies at age two and asthma years later at age four, about two times, uh, three, three times more likely to develop these diseases. What was different about these gut microbiomes? Well, what we found was it wasn't just a loss of bacteria that we saw on the high-risk NGM3 baby gut microbiome. We also saw that they were highly increased for what we consider to be allergenic fungi, rhododorula and candida. So this isn't just about a loss of bacteria. It's also about an increase in fungi in the gut microbiome of these babies. And using mass spectrometry, we asked, is the metabolic output of this gut microbiome distinct? And we found that, yes, it is. And I'm not showing you another one of those crazy plots where you can't read anything. But I'm going to summarize and tell you, just like we saw in our mice, the babies who went on to develop allergies and asthma had significantly reduced polyunsaturated fatty acids, amongst many other um, uh, lipids. And they also were highly increased for this one lipid, 12-13-dihome, a dihydroxy fatty acid. So what all of this pulled together suggests to us is that the NGM1 and 2 microbiomes are actually tolerogenic. They might be educating the immune response in a very different way from the NGM3 microbiome in the gut, which is full of potential pathogens and is metabolically very much altered. But how do we test this? We had to really think outside the box. All we had was stool from these babies, nothing else. And so what we thought is we could take immune cells from healthy adult donors, and we specifically took the immune cells that govern allergic response, dendritic cells, which present antigen to T cells, and educate the T cells and dictate what they will be when they mature. And so we purified these specific populations of cells, remember, from healthy adult donors. And we co-incubated the dendritic cells with the cell-free products of the gut microbiome of the high-risk NGM3 or the low-risk NGM1 babies, so that we could prime those dendritic cells. We let them sit for a while, and then we cultured them with the naive T cells, and we were particularly interested in what we would see with Th2 cells, remember the ones that produce inflammatory cytokines, and Treg cells, the ones that dial down inflammation. And what we found was that the cells that were co-incubated with the NGM3 fecal water from that one-month-old gut microbiome had far greater numbers of Th2 allergic T cells they produced more IL-4, and those um, T cells were significantly less likely to be regulatory T cells. So remember I told you the cardinal immune features of allergy and asthma at the outset of the talk? Here we can recapitulate them using the fecal products, the gut microbiome products of a high-risk one-month-old gut microbiome. 
This is years before we ever diagnosed the disease. But we were really interested in asking, what are the products in that kind of fecal milieu that produce this immune dysfunction? And we focused initially on this lipid that I told you about, 1213-dihome, because it kept coming up in all of our analyses. No matter what way we carved out the data, we kept coming back to this molecule. And so we asked whether this molecule could recapitulate features of that immune dysfunction I just showed you that we produced with the fecal water. And what we found was that, critically, this one molecule, as you increase the concentration of it, you reduced those regulatory T cells and you reduced their capacity to produce the anti-inflammatory molecule IL-10. So now we have a molecule that looks like it actually skews a very critical part of the immune response that we need to dial down allergic inflammation. So we wanted to test that in a mouse model. What we did is the same mouse model as I introduced you to earlier on, but here, three hours before we challenged the airways with cockroach, we injected this one lipid into the gut of a group of these mice and asked whether it exacerbated the allergic response in the airways of these animals. And what we found was a resounding yes. Here are our control animals, nice, clean air spaces. Here are the sensitized animals. All these little black spots are inflammatory cells around the air spaces. You can see they're constricted. There's pink mucus in there. These are the animals that got that one lipid into their gut before we sensitized them. Now we've absolutely occluded their air spaces with mucin and inflammatory cells. And consistent with what we'd seen in a test tube, these animals have significantly reduced regulatory T cells in their airways. And they have significantly increased IgE, that antibody that we know is associated with allergy and asthma in their circulation. So just by the simple introduction of this one lipid into these mice, we can exacerbate their allergic inflammation in their airways. And it suggests to us that elevated concentrations of this lipid in the very early life gut microbiome could actually have the same effect on that critical population of immune cells in these babies, reducing their capacity to dial down allergic inflammation. But we wanted to dig a little bit deeper. This molecule is the product of metabolism of linoleic acid. Linoleic acid is plentiful in breast milk. It's plentiful in formula. It's a key lipid in very early life nutrition. What we'd found in the healthy babies is that their, their fecal microbiomes are highly enriched for this other metabolite, dihomogamma-linoleate, which is a precursor to a whole range of anti-inflammatory products. The high-risk babies we had shown were highly enriched for this lipid. So what we hypothesized is it's actually the gut microbiome of these babies has the capacity to make 1213-dihome from linoleic acid. And we know that the final step to make this product is catalyzed by an epoxide hydrolase, a special type of enzyme that converts 1213-epome to 1213-dihome. So we went kind of dumpster diving in the gut microbiome. We went looking for microbial epoxide hydrolase genes. 
and we simply quantified them in the gut microbiome of babies who went on to be healthy or those who went on to be atopic or asthmatic years later in childhood. And remember, this is the one-month-old gut microbiome. And we found that the babies who went on to develop disease were significantly enriched for bacterial genes to make this lipid. Not only that, they also had far more of that lipid in their feces. And we went on to functionally test these bacterial genes and found that three of them could specifically make 1213-dihome, this lipid that seems to be so critical in promoting allergic inflammation, as we've seen in our mouse studies. And these are species that every baby has. They have them in their meconium microbiome. Every baby has an Enterococcus faecalis. Every baby has a Bifidobacterium bifidum. But we think the difference between health and disease is that the babies who have these species with these bacterial genes are the ones that go on to develop allergies and asthma. And we showed this is true using two birth cohorts. So we showed that for every doubling of the number of epoxide hydrolase genes in the one-month-old gut microbiome, there's a significant increased risk of developing allergies and asthma years later in childhood. And that's also true for every nanogram increase of that lipid 1213-dihome in the feces of these babies. And that's consistent when we look at a completely different cohort of babies based here at San Francisco at UCSF. So what this tells us is we've gone from a gut microbiome perturbation to identifying what we're thinking of microbial risk genes. These genes confer increased risk of developing allergies and asthma years later in childhood. And because of these genes and their products, we're beginning to understand why these babies develop disease. These microbial products really skew immune function and reduce the key immune cells necessary to dial down allergic inflammation. So we've got a new model for a pathway by which allergy and asthma may develop. It's one in which babies inherit microbes from their mothers, and they begin to develop their gut microbiome. And those that have a specific type of gut microbiome that is enriched for microbial capacity to produce this lipid 1213-dihome, they have reduced Tregs, these key immune cells to dial down inflammation. We know from our mouse studies that this lipid escapes the gut and actually enters the circulation and goes to the airways. And we think it exerts the same effect there, reducing these key immune cells in the airways. And what that gives rise to is a lack of capacity to respond to pathogenic microbes we encounter with every breath. And those babies build up a pathogenic airway microbiome over time, and that's what gives rise to the diagnosis of asthma in these children later in life. We know that this starter, distinct, perturbed gut microbiome gives rise to a different trajectory of microbiome development in the gut of these babies. So what can we do? Well, we've rationally designed a synthetic cocktail of microbes to be introduced in very early life, day one, day of delivery, to babies at high risk of asthma. These microbes encode all of the functions that these babies are missing in their starter microbiome. 
And the idea is that these microbes shape the immune milieu around them and that that governs the trajectory of microbiome development and will allow for appropriate microbiome development in early life and also will change the metabolic output. We will re-engineer the microbiome in these babies to change the metabolic output, change the interaction with the immune response, and prevent asthma. And this product is currently in clinical safety trials first before we use it as a treatment. But it's not just about allergy and asthma. We also are, are performing studies on the very early life gut microbiome and obesity, another plague on our nation. And we're finding very exciting and somewhat familiar findings. Here again, we find three distinct gut microbiomes in a much larger cohort of babies, over 400. One of them confers a significantly higher risk of developing overweight and obesity phenotypes in childhood. Those babies are more likely to be formula-fed. And what we found is that the products of that gut microbiome change how the cells lining the gut take up and release lipids. In fact, it accelerates that process. And so that we think that that excess lipid is entering the circulation, and if it's not used up, it's laid down as adipose, and this could be a mechanism by which these children ultimately develop obesity and overweight phenotypes later in childhood also offering the opportunity that perhaps, again, early intervention in these high-risk babies could change the course of their microbiome development and metabolic output of those communities and change their course of uh, health. And again, it's not just obesity. Um, Tiffany Scharschmidt, who's an incredible um, faculty member here at UCSF, is showing that this happens on the skin as well. The first microbes that colonize the hair follicle change, they are influence the immune milieu in that hair follicle and dictate which other organisms get to come to the party and co-colonize in that niche. And this is offering opportunities for, again, changing the microbial host interaction to change the course of disease development. We've also been looking at this in, in terms of the upper airway microbiome development and again have shown that babies with different trajectories of microbiome development in the upper airways are at higher risk of asthma. And there's specific colonization patterns that we've identified in the upper airways that not only increase the risk of asthma, they also increase the risk of exacerbation in those children. So again, thinking very differently about this, thinking about early life as an opportunity to re-engineer the microbiome in a manner that changes the physiology of the host and alters the, the um, trajectory of disease development in these uh, individuals. So what have we learned from um, this lecture? We know that very early life is a critical period in which we build our microbiomes, not just in the gut, also in the airway and at other sites across the body. And that the types, and more importantly, the genetic capacity of those microbial communities is really critical to promotion of health in humans. We know that there's distinct founder populations of gut microbes in very early life that strongly shape immune function and that relate to childhood disease outcomes. 
So we believe, again, we've got this canary in the coal mine. We've got this very early perturbation that gives rise to a downstream disease development years later in childhood. And part of that is that the microbes that are there are producing specific small molecules that are skewing immune function. And we believe that this is occurring in the earliest stages of postnatal life. And that that skewed immune function, that inflammatory milieu in the gut, is really strongly selecting the types of microbes that are permitted to occupy the niche in the gut. And that's why we see a lower diversification of those gut microbiomes over time in these babies. And we're really excited because we really believe that this is a new field that is changing the face of human biology. And we are delighted to, just this year, launch the Benioff Center for Microbiome Medicine here at UCSF. We're excited for what this field can do. And I've just really shown you a snippet of the background and some of the exciting work that's going on in the field. Within the center, you know, we're leveraging, for example, healthy periodontal microbiomes to find new microbes and molecules to tackle periodontal disease. We're looking at how the gut microbiome um, relates to multiple sclerosis. Sergio Baranzini in neurology has really strong data linking these, this disease with the gut microbiome, and he's now actually engaged in a fecal microbial transplant study of this population, asking whether that can improve symptomology in his patients. Katie Pollard, who's here at UCSF, is a computational whiz, and she's the one that's allowing us to look past who's there and look at specific genes that are the differentiator between health and disease development in our microbiomes and in our patient populations. And then finally, we're delving deeper into our trials of fecal microbial transplant to understand how does it work, which microbes matter, and which molecules matter, so we can build bespoke synthetic microbial communities that are tailored to specific patient subsets and not just necessarily go in with the blunderbuss fecal microbial transplant approach. And we believe with this we can actually enhance efficacy in this population. There's other things we're doing. We're leveraging microbes to combat microbes because that's what microbes do naturally in their ecosystems. They antagonize one another, and we're leveraging this knowledge. We're using phages. Uh, Phages are like viruses that bacteria have, and they are very specific in what they target. And we're asking whether we could use phage therapy instead of antimicrobial therapy. Can we be really specific and go after key pathogenic organisms that we believe are driving the pathology in our patients? In our upper airway studies, for example, we've got a couple of very Uh, key target organisms, Moraxella cateralis. We've seen it crop up across multiple different studies, and we're now going to target it with phage therapy to ask whether we can specifically take out that organism and re-engineer the microbiome of individuals that have these colonization patterns associated with their disease. There are efforts, not necessarily at UCSF, but at other sites, to leverage microbes to express specific uh, cargo in the gut, to produce the IL-10 molecule, for example, that dials down inflammation. 
We're working very hard at UCSF to understand diet and the microbiome. I showed you a snippet of work from the Turnbull Lab. We're using diet in a pilot study in ulcerative colitis patients to ask whether we can change the microbiome of those patients and induce remission by diet. We're also, as I mentioned, developing bespoke synthetic microbial cocktails. And ultimately, I believe that is the combination of diet and microbiome or specific substrates and microbiome symbiotics that I think will be most efficacious in our patient populations. And ultimately, our goal at the center is to focus on the early life microbiome as an opportunity to intervene early to prevent disease and to develop novel therapeutics to treat the variety of diseases that our patients suffer from. And with that, I am very happy to take any questions. Yeah, the question is about uh, probiotics in food and, and probiotics themselves, over-the-counter um, products. You know, it, it's, it's not an FDA-regulated area. Um, although they have been trying to um, really hone in on claims being made by companies about what probiotic supplements can actually do. I'll also say that not all probiotics are equal. Um, there are differences in, A, the types of microbes that are in probiotic supplements, and in, B, um, the quantities of microbes of viable live organisms in those products. And that very varies tremendously across products on the market. I think what's really key is... Um, two papers that came out last year that I think were really critical in our understanding of how probiotics may work. And these were studies looking at the gut microbiome of healthy volunteers who consumed probiotic, a probiotic um, product. And what they showed was whether the species in the probiotic were basically allowed to engraft or were capable of engrafting in the gut was entirely dependent on the microbes that were there already. And again, this gets at this idea that the microbes, the, the first come, first served, the microbes that are there already dictate who gets to come into the party. And that was shown very clearly. And that may explain why individuals may respond very differently to microbial introduction, be it by probiotics, be it via microbes that are on the food we consume, our microbial encounters and which microbes get to engraft anywhere in our system seem to be strongly influenced by the pre-existing microbiome that is there already. So I think, I think we can do better. I think there's some nice proof of principle out there. And in fact, some products have shown efficacy in you know, controlled clinical trials. Um, but I think there's a broad variety of products out there. They're really not equal. And in fact, there's been some studies that have shown that in some cases, um, some of the products, A, don't con contain the species that they're supposed to contain and actually contain a different species that could be detrimental to the consumer. So the question is, you know, how do you explain meconium microbiome? Does it come from the mother? Where does it come from? And if you're going to treat, why treat at, the, at, kind of at birth and why not treat the mother? So a few things. Meconium is swallowed amniotic fluid. It is, by definition, formed in utero. And a study I didn't show you that we are preparing for publication is one in which we've actually asked when our microbial encounters um, occur in the human fetal intestine. There's a lot of controversy around whether there's a microbiome associated with the placenta. The kind of jury's out on that. 
But we actually asked what's happening in the intestine of the fetus because there we know through previous studies, not from our group, but by other groups, that the immune system has already started to evolve and develop. And by 13 weeks gestation in humans has the capacity to sense and respond to microbes. So we looked at mid-gestation um, and found that there was a very sparse microbial signal in fetal, human fetal meconium. But that we could find microbes there. They're in these tiny little pockets. They're kind of tightly, densely packed together. They're embedded in the mucin, so this is not contamination. And they're in a subset of the samples we examined. We found an organism um, that, whose presence was correlated with a specific type of immune cell response. We weren't able to isolate that organism from the fetal meconium using media that traditionally selects for that type of organism. We had to add uh, pregnancy hormones and uh, an immune cell population into the selection media to be able to isolate that organism. We've sequenced its genome. It looks like other um, organisms that are phylogenetically related, but it has unique genomic features that we've not seen in other species, even those that are highly related, suggesting that it may be highly uh, evolved to be in the in fetal, uh, in fetal intestine in utero. We think that that process probably ramps up later in pregnancy because the this communities that we detect in, in postnatal meconium, the first bowel movement after birth, they're simple, but they're more complex than the really, really simple communities that we saw in the fetal intestine. Why not treat the mother? We don't know enough, is what I would say. You know, our studies have you know shown us that you know, other studies have shown that there's a, a difference in the three-month-old gut microbiome related to allergy and, and asthma. Our studies have shown that's true at one month of age and in meconium, and that's what's driven us into the fetal intestine to ask whether microbes are there. But we know virtually nothing about the maternal microbiome during pregnancy. There is a, a sparsity of papers out there. We know it changes with advancing pregnancy, we don't know why that happens. We don't know what the implications of, of that are on downstream health outcomes of the babies. And I guess the reason for intervening at uh, early postnatal life is that's the inflection point in microbial development. That's when these communities are at their simplest and when we believe there is greatest real estate open in the gut for colonization. And rather than we will perhaps ultimately um, intervene in pregnancy, but until we know a lot more in that field, that's not something that we are comfortable doing. We do know, and we have lots of different studies telling us what high risk for asthma babies are missing in terms of microbial capacity from the get-go, from the day they arrive, out through the first year of life. And for me, that's a safer um, approach to take rather than playing with what's happening in utero when we have no idea the implications of what we may do. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I would, I would preface the, the overuse of antimicrobials and its effect on the microbiome. 
I think there's a number of things that have gotten us to this place where we've extinguished a, a number of microbes that we think are probably critical for human function and, and health. One of them is plausibly antimicrobial use, but there's many other things. Diet, for example, has dramatically changed. We know that antimicrobial administration causes an acute and sometimes pervasive uh, drop in the diversity of microbes in the gut. But your response to antimicrobial treatment, again, is predicated on which microbes you house in your microbiome. Um, antimicrobials have saved lives. We have to first and foremost remember what, they, what we've used them for. Um, but in doing so, we may have created a, a bigger issue with chronic inflammatory diseases, is, is the, the, the thinking. But I will say that I still think they have great utility. In our fecal microbial transplant uh, studies with uh, ulcerative colitis patients, when we simply did a single colonoscopic delivery of the fecal microbial transplant, no one responded to the treatment. When we pre-treated the patients with antimicrobials and then gave the colonoscopic delivery followed by a month of treatment, that's when we got to 40% efficacy. So I guess it proves principle that it clears the decks for colonization um, and there is utility. And I think there's been a lot of effort for improved antimicrobial stewardship. I know um, I've gone recently with my child who had a, an earache and we were given a prescription but told to wait 24 hours and we never filled the prescription. And I think that there's, there's a lot more awareness. We didn't know about this field you know, 15 years ago. We didn't know the impact or the, the we, we really thought about antimicrobials in terms of antimicrobial resistance. We didn't consider what we are doing to the microbiome with their administration. So I think it's, it's if anything, been beneficial in prompting greater antimicro, antimicrobial stewardship across the, the, the health base system. There's one great paper out of um, Israel a couple of years ago uh, where they studied just that. They studied aspartame, which is an artificial sweetener, and they showed that A, it impacts the microbiome, and B, that the glucose spikes that they found in patient, or participants who consumed the artificial uh, sweetener were actually higher than that of a glucose hit. So it, it yeah, it, it yes. Yes and yes. It affects the microbiome, and it, it, it is really changing the kind of metabolism of the system, which we believe is really what's driving the physiology of cells and the human superorganism. So limited information on it, but what has been out there has been pretty interesting. They may not be doing what we think they're doing. So just to be really clear, and the question is, um, we've uh, talked about introduction of fecal material in children. I haven't. I'm talking about introduction of very specific microbes into babies, not feces. Uh, what about adults? Great, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, we believe that you can manipulate and re-engineer the microbiome. I think it's a higher bar in established chronic disease. And I think we're beginning to understand why. We're starting to look at whether these microbial molecules actually don't just change what the cells of the host are producing, but also maybe hardwire the genome of those cells. And we've evidenced that that actually occurs. So you're really undoing several layers of selective pressure on the microbiome from the host side. So I think that that's why 
you require a month of treatment in the case of autism spectrum disorder children to see a significant reduction in symptomology in those children. And I would argue that perhaps for those with chronic inflammatory diseases, it may be even more long-term treatment to manage their disease symptomology. In some severe cases, the jury's out whether we can ultimately bring back that system to one of a healthy system, um, but we'll certainly try. So the question is whether there are studies that have examined the microbiome in adults with obesity. That There's a large body of literature on that, and I would say that they're some of the seminal studies in the microbiome field. The very earliest studies showed that the obese gut microbiome is significantly different from that of the lean microbiome. And even in the simplest terms, just the, the, the relative ratios of the key groups of microbes in the gut are kind of firmicutes and bacteroides are a ratio of 3 is to 1 in lean individuals. And it's more like 30 to 1 in obese individuals. And that's what prompted those studies asking whether you could transfer an obese phenotype by just simply transferring the gut microbiome to those germ-free mice. Um, whether there are, are approaches to manipulate the gut microbiome to try and undo that, in one of those early studies, they did show that um, an intervention that comprised of a calorie-controlled diet and exercise regime led to weight loss and to the return of the gut microbiome back to that three-is-to-one ratio uh, compared to the obese uh, microbiome. It was a year of intervention. And this is the thing, thinking about, you know, what it takes to get to those and the severity of those chronic conditions, I think it's going to be a long-term intervention to really bring that system back towards something that resembles a healthy uh, microbiome. Um, the question being about H. pylori being a carcinogen. I think what's really important to think about here is how these organisms behave is entirely related to their microbial peers and their local ecosystem conditions. And, you know, thinking about Helicobacter as, you know, a single thing to target, I'm I'm not sure that that's the right way to go. You know, Marty Blazer would counter that uh, loss of Helicobacter pylori is associated with increased allergy and asthma development in Western worlds. So I think we have to think a little bit more critically about what these organisms are doing, how they're functioning, and really targeting the function rather than the organism. I think that that's because, you know, most of us have Helicobacter pylori, but it's controlled in healthy conditions, both by the, the conditions in the, in the stomach and by the organisms around that Helicobacter. So I think as we dig deeper into understanding specific mechanisms by which specific microbes drive disease processes, we become more precise in how we target those disease processes via microbes. Okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.